It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for so much for joining us. Um, as the announcer just reminded you, you can call in when we get to our page two expert. That number is 347-324-3080. You can also join us over in the chat room, and I see some folks there. You can ask questions there. And we are live on Facebook, and you can find us at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart, and you're welcome to ask me uh, questions there. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. First up here on The Nonprofit Coach, uh, on page one news is Davis Parchment. Davis is the manager of Knowledge Services, which means she's super smart, uh, over at the Foundation Center. And uh, welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach, Davis Parchment. Thank you so much, Ted. I'm delighted to join you and to share with all of your listeners uh, some really important information about the Get on the Map campaign, something that I'm sure is sort of trending on people's consciousness, but not necessarily entirely clear about what it is and how it benefits the sector, both the philanthropic side and the, 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 the doer side, the nonprofits that are actually getting the work done. And since you have such a, a broad audience for the show, I thought it would be a great opportunity for us to shed some light on this. Um, before I jump in to the actual campaign, let me sort of explain how the campaign was born and why it was born. And I think it's something that you're, all of your listeners can identify with. Um, if you've been in the sector for longer than 10 minutes, invariably you have run up against at some point some of the information challenges that we have. Think about sitting around a boardroom and saying, gee, I wonder who else is working on this, or I wonder who is funding people with disabilities in this rural community that we might partner with. I wonder how we might collaborate our funding a little better to tackle this particular issue area or to get our funding into specific regions uh, beyond sort of the recipient information. And so I think that that need that we have in our sector for information that is in near reasonable time at least uh, is, is something that when we have those questions we realize we have a lot of work to do to fill up fill in that information infrastructure because 
traditionally, the information that we have about the giving and the doing is tied to tax return forms, which are two years old and oftentimes aren't actually written with any idea that they would ever be used to track trends in funding or to identify where beneficiary populations are being targeted with grant making, et cetera, right? And so it was sort of out of that need that this campaign was born. It's 2016, almost 2017. We can't look at two-year-old tax forms to identify what's going on now. We need to be able to be more nimble. We need to be able to be responsive in case of emergencies. We need to be able to have a more coordinated effort in our work, especially as philanthropy is becoming more strategic. So if we look at that need, and everybody agrees to that need, there was sort of this question of, well, okay, who, who, who has a role to play in fixing this problem? And looking at that, obviously, we come up to the fact that foundations have to actually realize that they fundamentally are the source of the information on which we answer all of those questions. And I think that's, that's a big piece that hasn't necessarily always become obvious because foundations say, oh, we want to know what the trends in the giving are, or we want to have this access to this information, but it doesn't always point back to them being the source of the data. And then at Foundation Center, uh, I think everybody here probably has a, a good enough sense about what we do, but just for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time, I mean, we are sort of the central repository. We're the data keepers. We're the nerds. We collect the data. We structure the data. We visualize the data. We analyze the data. We look and we're, we're approached by so many different audiences in the sector to help answer questions for the sector. So we're, our role is to kind of be the data catcher, the data keeper, the data organizer, the data visualizer, the data analyzer. Um, but we don't actually have the reach that we need just because even though we have you know, 450 locations around the country where we partner and we help share information and we help education, not educate nonprofits, we don't necessarily have the reach that we would need to educate the funders and to encourage the funders to think about what data they should be collecting, what data they should be sharing in order to help make our sector come together a little bit more around this information infrastructure. And so it was sort of based on these opportunities that we realized, you know, the forum, they have the reach. And they have the trusted network between the, the forum and their 34 regional associations to reach deep into the philanthropic community to help do this education campaign about what and how and when should you share data. But we had to make sure that it was something that was a win-win for everyone who participated. So we all have a role to play, but in order to recognize our role and make sure that everybody gained and benefited from that role. We, we basically created a campaign called get on the map and it's very simple. It's the regionals encourage their members to share data with the foundation center using the electronic reporting standard, which sounds like I could get kind of data geeky with you. I'm not going to just this uh, Davis, high level. But just, Davis, if I can just jump in a second, we have uh, provided a link uh, to get on the map. Uh, both on our Facebook uh, page, uh, facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart, and it's also now added um, to this show on the podcast, so there's a link there as well. So anyone who wants to follow along with the information that you're providing, uh, they can do that now or as they're listening uh, to this podcast. So, uh, Davis, go ahead. Oh, fantastic. Great. I, um, and so the, basically the, the regionals are encouraging their foundation members to submit data following a standard that the Foundation Center has identified since you know, 1956. We've been collecting and answering questions about what's going on in the sector. And so we've identified some data elements, like there's the basic bean counting stuff, which is you know, how much money went to who, right? That's, that's kind of what the IRS forms are for, right? What we want to get is beyond that. You know, give us a rich grant description. Was there a, a specific population that was targeted? You know, what were the subjects of the grant? Where did the grant go beyond the recipient address, right? If you're thinking about some of the rural urban divides or, you know, Washington, D.C., that's a hotbed for international NGOs that are actually working overseas, right? So how do we track the data more accurately? And within that sort of template is an opportunity for foundations to share that more complete, that more accurate data about the intentionality of their giving. But 
in order for foundations to understand, because there's sort of an education piece of this, what we have done is we've visualized the data that they have sent to us in these custom maps that become member benefits for the regional associations. So then the regional can see how the, the data that they submitted to us is translated into an interactive tool that, that becomes then an opportunity for them to scan the landscape in the region, sort of like a member directory on steroids. But it also is an opportunity for them to even improve the data that they're submitting. So there's 26 regions that are participating in this campaign around the country. They represent over 3,000 funders. They represent over $55 billion in giving. And they're all encouraging their members to start to standardize the data for the sector and to get ahead right. of the 990 lag. So it's very, very And Davis, now how, how does that data coming in, does that also get mapped to the SDGs? So that's actually where the benefit comes in and the efficiency is, is built into the sector. So wherever the data comes in and it is coded where it's appropriate to other conversations that the Foundation Center is managing, whether it's the SDGs or democracy funding or media impact funding or equal footing, all of these other subject-specific conversations benefit immediately from the data if the, that grant making has the, those, those beneficiaries or those subjects in common. So that's the nice thing about having a central repository. You're building some beautiful data efficiencies where it's sort of one data point of entry and now multiple data use points, right? Um, so that's a really exciting thing. And I think where I think some of your audience might be the most excited about that is that also translates into tools like Foundation Directory Online, where now right. grant seekers can go beyond sort of what the funder says they fund, which is, you know, hey, we fund education. But they can look at 2016 grants that were specifically focused on education and see the subtext of the priority of the foundation. So they're not sending sort of the wrong applications at the wrong time to the, for the wrong types of funding. They're really seeing the nuance of the priority of that foundation. Um, so that's a they can really also benchmark. They can also benchmark their work uh, against grants that are being made. So, so real live time, they can see um, what what information foundations are looking for and what the trends are and what they're likely to be funding. Exactly. It's it and and it makes for a much more um, nuanced and um, in, intelligent conversation when you approach a foundation to be able to say, I see you have, and this is why I see the fit exists, as opposed to, you know, we're sort of interested, you're an education funder, you know, should we apply, right? That's not, no one wants to have that conversation. <laughs> so, right, right. See, everybody, so really didn't I tell you that Davis Parchment was very smart? Uh, she is. Uh, but, Davis, you, you also have a way to help everybody else become very smart. Uh, you have some upcoming events. Uh, you have some webinars that folks can register right. for. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split my advice for your audience to say, if you're a foundation and you want to get involved, let me encourage you to check your regional website. And mm -hmm. there's uh, every region that's participating ha has all the information you need on their website about how you can participate and quote unquote get on the map. And within that, you right. Be and Davis, to I, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting, but I want to direct people. Um, so on the link that we provided for get on the map is a link to each of the participating organizations. So everybody who is a funder who is listening and wants to be able to find that link, it's, it's already there. Perfect, thank you. Um, so go to your regional association, and one of the things that you'll find is that they're all listing those webinars. And those monthly webinars that we offer are exactly how you can participate. So it, it, we're going to get under the hood of some of the data elements and talk about how you export and share data and make a regular practice of it. Um, and those are just monthly for, for all foundations to join in, and all the information you, have, what you need will be at your regional website. And then I will say also, tell a friend about this because, as I mentioned, we all have a role to play to fill in this information infrastructure. And so, you know, the more we can get the word out to the funders that we're, we're collecting this information, the better off we are. Now, for your nonprofit audience, I would say here's, here's how you benefit from this. Um, you know, go to one of the funding information network locations, and you can go to grantspace.org, and I'll let Ted, maybe put that up for people. I'm putting um, that right on right now. So grantspace.org. 
Yeah. And if you go to grantspace.org, there's a little link on the top that says find us. Type in your zip code, and that will tell you all the locations where you can access the directory that will actually point and structure that, that data in addition to everything else the Foundation Center collects in such a way that it helps you to identify a really solid match with funders. And what's cool about this is that the Foundation Directory Online doesn't just limit to the funders that are in your region. It really targets the funders that are out of your region that are funding in your region. Because one of the things I think nonprofits come, against, come up against all the time is they are stuck with like the same five foundations in their neighborhood that they think are the only ones that fund in their neighborhood. And how do you break out of that? And what you come when you see that, that central repository, when you see that national picture or that international picture, you start to realize there's a bunch of random foundations that fund in your area and you have no idea why. Like when I look in Oregon, for instance, there's a bunch of Iowa foundations that fund in Oregon. Who knows why, right? right? But they do. Or they and may so be funding you, on a topic, right? They, it may right, not be they, that they know that you exist, but they're keenly interested in a topic. Exactly, exactly. So this data benefits everyone, and I, I encourage your nonprofits to go ahead and take a look at Grantspace. Find the, the location closest to you where you can go and tap into the directory, have somebody there who knows how to navigate it, use the directory to really do an, an, an intelligent uh, research process around identifying a good partner for your work. So that's the Get on the Map in a nutshell. Well, Davis, thank you so much for being our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach, and we look forward to having you back with the Foundation Center Minute. Great. Thank you so much, and have a great show. Thank you. And now we move on to page two. It is my pleasure to welcome here to the nonprofit coach Nathan Dietz, who is Senior Research Associate in the Urban Institute's Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy. He has served as Associate Director of the National Center for Charitable St Statistics um, and has led the uh, Urban Institute's involvement in the Growth in Giving Initiative and the Fourth Sector Mapping Initiative. And of course, Nathan, that's what you're here for, is to uh, talk to us about this new Giving USA Spotlight, Benchmarking Giving to Human Services. So welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, Nathan Dietz. Thank you very much, Ted. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a, I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to talk about uh, this, this new initiative that we have underway. I think uh, well, I'm, the, um, I, as soon as I saw this, um, I you know I just we knew that we needed to have you uh, on our show. So um, our producer Diane Peach reached out to you uh, to get you on here as quickly uh, as we could. Um, and this groundbreaking research um, is based on newly available data uh, that shows the growth rate for charitable donations in the human service organizations. Um, and so why don't you give us um, a, a starting point on what makes this groundbreaking, why is this so important, and then we really want to get into it because you've got, you've got tools and data that can be readily available, particularly at this important planning time of the year for human service organizations as they start looking at year-end and then planning for 2017. Oh, that's true. I'd, actually, I'd, I'd and now making that connection, but it is just about the end of the year, and I imagine uh, a lot of folks in your audience are, are trying to figure out how they're going to close the books out for 2016. Um, I, I should, as you suggested, I should probably start at the beginning um, and talk about yeah. the way that this initiative got organized. Um, we, the Growth and Giving Initiative, is a started off as a partnership between uh, three founding partners: the Urban Institute the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and, uh, and our two organizations go way back, I think, and I've uh, been working with fundraisers uh, as well as with the nonprofit sector as a whole. But we got together with uh, a donor software uh, vendor firm that provides donor software called uh, Donor Perfect. And uh, the, the three organizations got together based on the idea that uh, um, there was a lot of available data out there that fundraising software providers 
collected already and uh, been processed and uh, been had up in the cloud uh, for their own use, for their own research use, that if we could just ask them nicely enough, uh, we might be able to get these donor software firms to share data with researchers, especially uh, especially us here at Urban, um, so that we could put together a publicly available database that, that could be used for research like, uh, like what we put together this fall. And uh, it, I'm skipping over a, a few years of work, hard work that went into talking with the donor software firms, trying to convince them to, to join up with us. But at this point, we've, we've talked with just about every major firm in the sector, plus some that probably wouldn't qualify as major. Um, and uh, we have contributions of data from several firms uh, going back, in, in most cases, at least 10 years, back to the, the mid-2000s. Uh, we have data from over 11,000 organizations and most importantly, I think we have data at the gift transaction level. That is just a, an individual donation of money from an individual donor to a specific organization. We have 120 million gift transactions in our database and counting. So that's, a, that, that's kind of a, a short uh, a, history a powerful of data the Birth and Giving Initiative. Sure is, yeah. It's a powerful data um, Yeah. It's a... I think one thing that uh, um, one thing that everybody's pleased with, I think, is not just the, the sheer size of the database, because uh, if if you're collecting all your data from one organization or one group of organizations, then uh, that's that's useful, that's important, but it's not as useful as if you have, um, you know, something like coverage of the entire sector. Uh, we before we published anything, we we went to work with. Uh, uh, the folks from the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, who we work with on uh, on many projects, actually. Um, but we asked for their help in, uh, in helping us ascertain how representative our data were. Um, and uh, we were pretty pleased with what we found. We did some of this work on our own, and uh, we, uh, we discovered that we had pretty good representation of much of the nonprofit sector. Um, if you if you use the NTE codes to classify nonprofit organizations, uh, you know we we have our, our data is pretty representative of of the sector using NTE codes to to split it up into subsectors. Um, we don't have great coverage for the very largest organizations, um, especially the the, the uh, bigger hospitals. And uh, in the major colleges and universities, nonprofit colleges and universities, but we have pretty good coverage almost everywhere else, especially for small and medium-sized organizations. And uh, that's that's really nice because uh, in the in certain subsectors like human services, many of the organizations that are most active in communities don't aren't gigantic. That doesn't mean they don't have big impact, but they're just not very large-sized. So. Mm -hmm. Um, well, the, the, these organizations really uh, provide and create uh, what is often known as the safety net, right? So, um, so we are talking about organizations like food banks and home, homeless shelters and youth services, sports organizations, family and legal counsel services. So this is really, you know, that, that, that on-the-ground um, network that um, oftentimes those in need really depend upon. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, but some of those organizational types that you mentioned, like sports organizations, you might not call them uh, kind of urgent care or crisis-oriented type of social services, but, uh, but most of the ones that people think of, when you think about nonprofit organizations, if you have this image in your mind that primarily they respond to pressing community needs, then... Uh, I think most of the organizations that, that come to people's minds would be located in this human services subsector. Um, and so right. that, that's and in that human just to set this up so that so that people know um, because we we have all sorts of different uh, listeners and so what segment of the nonprofit uh, community are we targeting uh, in our discussion today? If it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but they comprise about 35 and a half percent of all public charities um, in the United States, um, and, but received just 11.7% of all charitable donations. 
Um, so that the, the the disparity there doesn't seem to really speak to the point that you're making is when you think of charitable and you think of those in need, um, these are sort of the organizations that you might have in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, when you, uh, it's funny when you mentioned the, the biggest part of the subsector, it depends on what, what, how you're measuring size. There are more human services, <clears throat> pardon me, organizations than there are of any other, any other type. But, um, but most of the money goes to uh, does not go to human services organizations. There are a couple of subsectors that that take in more funds from uh, from all all sources, and uh, there are a lot of others a lot of other organizations organizational types that do more programming than human service organizations measured in terms mm-hmm. of expenses. But um, right, <clears throat> and uh, and there there are many I think subsectors that uh, that take in more funds from private donors than human services organizations. But I, I think mm-hmm. even that fact just uh, is a good reason to is a good reason to shine the light on these organizations. They're everywhere. Right. And that's, what, doing such and that's what your report does is really shine yeah. the light on the work that they do, but also this sort of disparity in giving. Um, Nathan, if you don't mind, I, I do like to attend to questions that, that come in. Um, and sure. if you don't mind, um, I, I think Davis Parchment is still on the switchboard here. Davis, are you still with us? I am. I am. Okay. If you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to pull you both in, both Davis uh, and Nathan. Uh, we do have uh, um, a, a question that came in from Michelle uh, Berard, and I'm not quite sure who it was due to uh, because it's sort of, uh, Michelle, thank you for posting your question, but it kind of came right in between the two segments. Um, so she asks, how do you deal with the give where you live aspect. I live in a very small state. Um, so I, I think uh, Michelle's gonna really benefit by having a lot of firepower here uh, because you both come at the sector with very important data sets. Um, so Nathan, can you take that question first that you were mentioning how a lot of these organizations, while they make up roughly a third of all nonprofits, are in very small rural areas. So um, how do you deal with the give where you live aspect of this? Well, we can um, we can find out uh, how organizations do from uh, uh, raising funds from private donors from all all parts uh, parts of high and low uh, all parts of the country. Um, we're we're actually not able to directly deal with the question. I, I think as Davis's data is, our, we we can't figure out uh, where the donors are located. I think that uh, the information that we get from the the donor software firms gives us the location of the destination organization uh, right. or their headquarters. Well, with your data, so if we look at this from two different sides, and, and uh, Davis, yeah. thank you for, for, for staying on with us here, but for your information, Nathan, uh, where Michelle can come at, at this is benchmarking against other organizations that are maybe in similar sized communities. Um, so Absolutely. as you said, yeah. you're able to benchmark to the charity um, but Davis, you're able to give some insight into institutional donors who are then supporting um, smaller organizations. So, sort of two important pieces of the pie, right? So, Davis, tell us how you would come at this question. How do you deal with the give where you live aspect? You know, I think that that is where our information infrastructure has struggled the most, especially when where you live is small and has smaller foundations and smaller giving because, you know, where the foundation centers has traditionally just because of the sheer volume of data that we there that exists out there, you know, we have had to focus on the top 1000 foundations when we're culling through their 990s and coding that data. And one of the great benefits of the Get on the Map campaign is actually that we're getting at that data from the smaller foundations in the smaller communities that are giving locally and they're they're putting nuance to that to that giving, right? They're explaining that giving. So if there's no guesswork for the foundation center to wonder looking at a 990, you know, for the library project, what does that mean? You know, and and they're really giving us some texture. And so I think what's happening is 
the picture is sort of emerging. Now, to answer your question dealing with it, I, I have to say, you know, we part of the, the, the incentive structure of the philanthropic sector is that we can't direct where people give their money. I mean, that's, that's, that's their discretion right, right. to give their money. Mm-hmm. But we can encourage them, and I think where we can encourage them is using data to show where differences are being made and where, where, right. where emphasis where there is need, where there are gaps, and where there is opportunities and where there is momentum. And so that's, yeah. I think, how we deal with it is education. And, and within education, we need information. And so that's, that's kind of how we're dealing with it is we're trying to, to surface the picture so that you can say, wow, in Oregon, there's three counties that didn't receive any money, right, around this exactly. issue. Exactly. And that, the that's the beauty of today's show is having both uh, Davis and Nathan here, both looking at, at opposite ends of the spectrum, but both very, very important. And, and as you're pointing out, Davis, we're just now starting to get enough data to see where those gaps are. So maybe to Michelle's question, you know, her frustration, she says, I live in a very small state. So, um, and, and, and most likely, probably in, in years past, even in months past, um, completely forgotten in sort of this framework of data collection. Uh, but now your initiative, Davis, and the work that Nathan, you're doing is starting to now get to a richness of the data that we're able to see um, where sort of those funding deserts are um, from the from the funding um, perspective so that, you know, um, you're able to, Davis, map and see, you know, what counties within a state where maybe there's a, a great deal of need, there's no funders that, that, that are funding. And Nathan, you can look at it from the perspective of looking at it from the charity's perspective that is in that small community um, and able to map back to, you know, average gift and how that might um, be um, either the same or, or, or uh, different from similar size um, charities and similar size communities. So at least folks like Michelle who really care about this and are struggling and have been struggling, there are some emerging data sets that allow you to at least start modeling what that looks like and be able to then speak authoritatively to funders um, about funding deserts and, and why they exist and, and what they can do about them. That's true. I, uh, and uh, first of all, Davis, I've, uh, hearing, the, hearing the discussion of Get on the Map, I, I think that this is yet another tremendous project and initiative that the Foundation Center has going and uh, just know that over here at the Urban Institute we're rooting for you as we as we tend to do but um, Excellent. <laughs> yeah but that's uh, great when it comes but when it comes to uh, um, when it comes to, to local variation I think that's one of the strengths of our database too we have data at the three-digit zip code level for organizational location and uh, right now I'm involved in a project that uh, we're really looking forward to uh, that we think is going to be really interesting uh, that studies the relationship between organization level fundraising performance uh, using stats like donor retention um, and the state's fundraising regulatory environment. We've got, I'm working with a couple of scholars who specialize in the study of state politics and policies surrounding fundraising and nonprofit charitable regulations. And uh, we're working together. I'm bringing the data. They're bringing the substantive expertise to this project. That that is really important work. Um, and and do do um, uh, Davis? I'm going to say thank you for staying on and, and helping us with uh, Michelle's question, which was posted uh, over on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. So back here with uh, Nathan uh, Dietz. Um, Nathan, um, so is this part of What's new in this new dynamic is that uh, you and other folks, you know, like the Foundation Center, with the data that you're collecting, are now able to get the attention of serious researchers um, who can actually start helping us make sense of this data. Well, we've been lucky, I think, uh, especially we and who've worked for the National Center for Charitable Statistics, NCCS. Uh, We've been lucky to, to have had great relationships with uh, pretty much all the major researchers in the field who study nonprofit finance because of the work we've done and uh, been putting together uh, data sets for researchers to use from the 990s um, and mm-hmm. the, all, the, all the flavors of the 990. Um, but 
we agree completely with Davis that uh, there, the limitations of the 990s, it really doesn't take long to, to for those to smack you right in the face and, uh, right. and really, make you realize it's really that. way too limiting. Um, but you're bringing yeah. you're bringing a whole new level of data, which is is not at all available in just a review of the 990s, where you're now able to to map and start looking at things like average gift amount and overall donor retention and repeat donor retention and and you know giving by gift size. I mean that's very rich modeling for any organization of of any size. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, for it, it's useful for organizations. Uh, researchers are doing cartwheels uh, and just uh, hoping that, uh, counting the days until they can uh, they get access to the publicly available version of our database. But I, I think you you raise what I think is one of the motivating uh, factors behind our our entire initiative, which is that we're producing this data. We're producing the data and producing these reports primarily to benefit nonprofit organizations and fundraisers. Um, fundraisers, I think, can learn from, uh, learn from looking at more benchmarks, I think, than they ever have access to data from more benchmark organizations uh, that, that they can use just to learn what the fundraising environment looks like um, in, large, in a larger space than they, than they normally operate in. Uh, organizations can learn the same thing, but organizations can actually uh, uh, can actually use a tool that we've developed that's uh, that, that's a little older than the the growth and giving database, actually, but um, as uh, but but is is at least is useful for an individual organization. Organizations can use a tool called the fundraising fitness test to flow in their own data that they've collected from uh, from individual donors and uh, data on gifts and. Uh, calculate these statistics on their own automatically so it's a it's a great way for them to learn for organizations to learn no matter how small they are how they stack up against uh, against their peers Nathan I'm gonna ask you to hold right there because I do want uh, when we come back okay. from a very quick break um, I do want to ask you to get in a little bit more in depth to uh, that fundraising fitness test and what um, our listeners can expect uh, to get from that if they use um, that fitness test uh, because that's a, a, a free tool that is uh, is now available. So we want to make sure that our listeners uh, are able to avail themselves of that. And uh, we will be right back. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? And we all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtru, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we are uh, back here live with Nathan Dietz. He's a senior research associate in the Urban Institute Center on Philanthropy uh, and Nonprofits and Philanthropy. Um, Nathan, before we went uh, on that break, I, I was asking if you could give a little bit more insight for our listeners in this fundraising fitness test and what can they expect to get from that? I'd, I'd be happy to. I think uh, the fundraising fitness test is a, a the the product and I think uh, one of the one of the prize creations actually of my colleague uh, Bill Levis Wilson Levis who has uh, who has devoted his life to the study and 
No, that's not true. He hasn't devoted his life to the study of the nonprofit sector. He's devoted his life to the improvement of the nonprofit sector. Um, he was instrumental in the creation of Form 990. Uh, he has done a lot of work to uh, to help organizations uh, uh, on, on using tools like the uh, Unified Chart of Accounts, um, helping organizations keep better track of their finances to make reporting easier. But he is the architect uh, and the owner and sole proprietor of the Fundraising Fitness Test. What, what the Fundraising Fitness Test allows you to do as an organization is just, um, if, if you collect just a very few data points about, your, uh, about the con contributions that your donors make, all you need is unique donor identifiers, uh, just that are time consistent so that you know that donor 25 is uh, Jim Green uh, at every point in time. You need that information for every gift plus the amount and the date of all the all the gifts that are made by your donors. If you have that information, as far as uh, you can just uh, upload it straight into uh, a fitness test uh, uh, web file that, that's available on the uh, um, website of the, um, uh, that's a web page that's on the AFP uh, website. Um, the, yeah, and, the page and is Nathan, actually- let you and our listeners know um, that is now posted on our Facebook page, the link to where you oh, can find the fundraising fitness test. Um, and um, when you get there, you're downloading an Excel file that you then enter data in. So, uh, 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 Nathan, if you would let our listeners know, once they have that file, what do they do and what that, what's that going to tell them? I think all they need to do is just a um, – Take a gift transaction file um, after you export it from whatever software, um, whatever software package you use, or even if you capture, a, capture your data in, a, um, in an Excel format. The, the trick is just to get it into the, the simple format that the fundraising fitness test requires. And then all you do um, is just copy that straight into the, straight into the test itself. Um, I guess there's a, there's a page in the Excel workbook where you copy your data and the statistics that are on the front end uh, uh, data tables all calculate automatically. And you can look at things like uh, donor gains and losses, uh, which, is, which is really one of the major insights I think that you get from something like this. You can tell that if you're like most organizations, uh, you acquire a certain amount of money every year. In some cases, it's a lot of money from people who are new donors or recaptures, but you lose probably something like the same amount of money from people who drop out altogether or reduce their contributions. Um, so you're able to take a look at what your net growth in giving looks like from year to year based on uh, changes that you see in the, the, the donor database and the amounts, uh, the amounts that they gave. Um, so you can look at and you can look at a wide variety of other statistics. I think the test has a test has a, a number of things just about a it's really astounding how many different statistics you can create from just a couple of data fields in a database. But the fitness test will show you your fundraising performance, your organization's fundraising performance in more ways than probably you ever imagined. And in doing that, you're, you now um, are able to, um, as you mentioned, start benchmarking and understanding yep. your data in a way that perhaps you haven't really been able to look at either because you didn't have the skill set uh, or uh, you didn't have access to a tool that actually this does the analysis for you. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, that's, I think, the great thing about the fitness test is that it, it shows people. Um, it shows people that you don't need to do any more to process your data than, uh, than you already do. If you have any kind of data collection system set up, then uh, uh, you can use the fitness test to learn uh, to, to study the same uh, sophisticated metrics that professional fundraisers use when you hire them as consultants to look at your organization's operations. Um, you also, I think on the AFP FEP page, there's a link to a, a YouTube video where uh, Randy Fox from uh, uh, the Adventist Church's Philanthropic Services to Institutions uh, Department uh, shows you how to use the fitness test, gives you some hands-on 
uh, a hands-on demonstration about how to use the fitness test in an Excel version. So, and as yeah, they say, it's, no a better, it's a better better measure of success. But one of the, the things, Nathan, that, that I think is often missed when you gain access to a new tool like this, particularly for smaller organizations, and I'm, I'm reminded back to uh, the question that, that Michelle asked uh, earlier in the show, um, you know, in terms of for people who live in smaller states or in smaller organizations or don't feel that they have the same sort of access uh, to donors that maybe larger organizations do, part of that challenge is helping your board of directors understand where you fit within the community um, and what are the, the proper benchmarks of success. Um, and a tool like this can help sort of uh, level set the discussion, if you will, um, with a board of directors that's trying to find a way to provide proper oversight. Definitely. I, I think that, uh, the, first of all, as, as Michelle, I was very glad to see Michelle's comment because that's the type of consideration that, that motivates me as a researcher. Um, too much, to, especially it seems like in fundraising, so much attention is paid to the giant organizations and how much money they raise that uh, the, the smaller organizations, which are you know, far and away the majority don't get anywhere near the, the amount of attention they deserve, not from, uh, not from people who are trying to say something uh, in, in, that summarizes the impact of the nonprofit sector and not even from researchers. So I'm glad that we're able to do this for organizations that are small or located in, uh, in less populous areas. Um, mm -hmm. So... Yeah, and that's not to say that this uh, this isn't uh, available and of use to larger organizations. But right. on on this show, right. we always try to to help those who don't have the resources, but oftentimes are part of that that social safety net where they really are dealing with human suffering and human need uh, in a very real sense on the ground, um, and and oftentimes are struggling to make payroll and to pay for what they need, uh, while at the same time, you know, when, you know, for instance, coming out of the Great Recession, um, you know, these organizations were even more stressed because people they weren't used to seeing or people who weren't used to being in need suddenly were in need at the very time that these organizations were not seeing a big um, uplift in their, in their own donations. That is, a, if, you, if you take a look at the actual results, um, that that we have highlighted in our our spotlight here, I think that's one of the one of the things we're able to show. Um, we're really lucky. I think that uh, that that one of the one of the major uh, benefits of using the the data that we use is that it does go back uh, a couple years before the recession was said to have started. So we're able to look at we're, we're able to look at fundraising history for not for human services organizations as a whole uh, going back before the a couple years before the recession and uh, through today which is several years after the recessions ended um, and I think you do see that you see that uh, you see what organizations did um, during that period when they were all of a sudden faced with meeting so many more community needs uh, delivering services to so many more people in, in places um, without uh, seeing any more money coming in by and large I mean, uh, the the Recovery Act did uh, give some large organizations um, uh, additional money to to take on additional clients or deliver more services. But uh, your listeners probably know this better than me. Most organizations uh, didn't get anything like that in terms of help. Right. Um, and I think what you see when you look at the statistics is that uh, uh, organize. Um, Human services organizations have actually done, uh, uh, made it through that period. They've, they haven't just survived; they've really thrived, and uh, right. they're catching up with uh, other organizations in some key metrics like dollars per donor or uh, donors per organization. Um, mm -hmm. and they're holding their own on other other metrics, including some that don't, uh, that haven't been trending in the right direction at all for for quite some time now, like retention rate. Uh, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you to focus on that. One of the things I found very interesting uh, in your report is that 
those organizations that receive less than a million dollars in total annual contributions. So yeah. we're talking about really yeah. small organizations. Um, you're showing, and the data shows, that um, they're frequently um, the most successful in donor acquisition. Um, so, uh, and that may belie what a lot of uh, our listeners today and on the podcast might believe anecdotally, um, but can you point to why that is the case or how that is the case? Yeah, it's a, that's something that uh, um, that's something I think that surprised a couple people. I think that uh, um, because when you think of donor acquisition, you think that uh, um, it, you, you think about the fact that so many organizations place so much emphasis on it um, that, uh, that it, it, for a lot of organizations, it's really the key. To, uh, to to growth is to bring in new donors, um, and uh, I think there are a lot of organizations, large, medium-sized, and small, that devote so much attention to donor acquisition that they forget about the donors who are uh, who are their tried and true supporters, and that's right. why that's right. why you see this net gain of uh, money and donors uh, that are that are acquired through new donors, new donor acquisition, almost get offset completely by uh, the losses that are suffered through donor retention. So, All right. but, but the question of why small organizations tend to do so well in this is, uh, I, I was surprised by that because I think of, because I think of donor acquisition as a, a really resource intensive uh, responsibility mm-hmm. of an organization. And here, here you see that it's the organizations that are smaller who, uh, um, who actually do the best job at it measured by this metric. Uh, I think what that might mean, and uh, you see that elsewhere in other figures, but uh, the larger the organization, the better the donor retention. And so maybe that's maybe that's what you see. You see uh, larger organizations maybe that, that have the wherewithal or uh, maybe access to their own data to, to see the results and figure this out for themselves. But they don't do but as well. But you show in your, donor in your data enough. Yeah, you, you show a, 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 another data point that I wonder if they're – if they're somehow related, because at the same time that you're showing that the small um, nonprofits, so you know, relatively, I would say we could call those grassroots uh, organizations, are successful at donor acquisition. My read of that, and 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 please correct me if I'm wrong, is is that you know these are donors who really can identify with that need in their own community. So when you actually get out there and ask. Um, the the propensity to to give and to be acquired as a donor um, is relatively high uh, for that grassroots organization. But your data also shows that they that these organizations are more successful at retaining higher end donors relative to small yep. donors. And and I'm wondering if these are actually working um, with the the same data set and that data set being a very small staff. So a very small staff that might be able to successfully send out, do an email campaign or direct mail campaign, and at the same time really only has a limited number of hours for donor retention, and so they naturally are going to gravitate towards higher-end donors because they don't have a big staff, and they're not able to do sort of that high-touch end of fundraising. And so these two data sets actually work in tandem um, even though you sort yeah. of don't want them to. Well, you know what? I, now, now that you mention it, uh, this is really interesting, Ted. I think what we could do, which we don't do here, is uh, just take a look at retention rates for small organizations and retaining big donors. We break down mm-hmm. uh, retention rates by size of the organization, and we break down retention rates by size of the contra- size of the gift, but. We don't break the data down in both ways. We have so much data that we could do that, and uh, and you're convincing me that we should. (laughs) Well, good. Well, good. Well, I I just I I, I think it is a challenge. You know, folks like Michelle, and again, uh, thank you for that question. Remind us that you know, in this new era, which I'm I'm absolutely thrilled with, um, the fact that you folks are providing so much more access to to data. But my my question to you is, are we just now starting to understand the sector rather than necessarily the sector has changed? In other words, this is the first opportunity we've really had to understand 
um, all aspects, and particularly smaller organizations, tend to have gotten forgotten or left out of prior research uh, projects, again, because of the lack of data and the lack of capacity to crunch that data. We're now looking mm -hmm. deeper into a sector than we've ever seen before. I, th I think we have that capacity, but I, I personally, and I, I'm speaking for everybody in our project when I say this, but I think uh, we have we have the Giving Institute and the Giving USA Foundation and the folks at Giving USA that produce the annual report. We have all those people to, to thank for uh, thank yeah. for the fact that thank for a bunch of things. First of all, we need to thank them all for the fact that through the Giving USA report, we know as much as we do about the sector and about um, about fundraising and about uh, giving and philanthropy. Um, that's the, the benchmark and always and has been for decades now. But I think uh, we, we have the, the people at the foundation, especially to thank uh, for the opportunity to work with them to produce the spotlight report. I think that what they saw was that, uh, you know, we, we had a project that was, uh, we had a project that had the capability of uh, teaching their readers, teaching their, their core audience something that they didn't know before about how fundraising works in America. And uh, we, but we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been able to talk directly to their audience without their help. So um, through working with them and through working with the folks at uh, the Lilly Family School who put the annual report together, um, I think we're talking more about how to, uh, uh, how to bring the, how to bring the data and the potential that our data uh, contain into this larger enterprise of trying to talk about philanthropy and uh, and giving in, in the USA. Um, so uh, you're right. I think it's uh, we're, we're we feel like we're uh, um, we're, we're the, the the opportunity to do this is coming along right in right in time for us because we're we're uh, probably newly capable of taking on a responsibility like that. But um, we, we've been very lucky. That uh, we've been we've been met halfway by the people um, who really have been turning out the industry standard in terms of research on philanthropy for a, a long time now, and it's great right, to be working right. with them. Yeah, yeah. So we only have a, a, a couple minutes left here, so I'm wondering if you can give us your very best advice for all of our listeners on how they might use these tools and this data. Uh, to affect year-end giving and to plan for the new year. Yeah, no, happy to. Well, uh, uh, as as everybody knows, and uh, I think uh, if you don't know, then uh, it's the last figure in our report. Then most uh, individual donations come in at the end of the year, especially in December. Um, it's not the the majority or anything like that, but it's far and away more than you see coming in in any other month. Um, we have uh, data on the timing of donations, so that's where that's where we can uh, that's what we use to create that figure. Um, but if you have data on your own organization's fundraising and your own outreach to donors, then uh, download it. Follow the instructions on AFPFEP.org. Download uh, an extract from your organization's database and copy it into the fundraising fitness test. Take a look for yourself mm -hmm. at the stats that come out. And uh, you know, compare them to the uh, compare them to the results in our tables. You can see for yourself uh, just how your organization, uh, your own individual organization, stacks up against the rest of the sector. Um, then, uh, I, I think the other thing that uh, only other thing that you might want to do is uh, uh, take a, take a look at the key metrics, uh, figure out what it is you can uh, you can do to uh, um, you, you you might choose to do the first to improve your organization's performance and uh, I think the AFP website has a lot of other good uh, resources that organizations can use to uh, sort of get more hands-on advice. Mm. And again we've provided that link uh, over on Facebook and that link has also been provided to the podcast website uh, as well, Great. so you can link right there to to find those tools. Uh, final thing, uh, Nathan, how can our listeners uh, contact you if they wanted to uh, contact you regarding your research and your work? Oh, I, well, they can contact me personally. I'd, I'd love to hear it. I think uh, I'm in the uh, my my contact information is at the back of the spotlight report, um, and the spotlight report is a 
I, we didn't send it to everybody else because it's available through the the Giving USA Foundation. But I think did did we send out the um, the story from the nonprofit quarterly? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's got more background information about the report. Your listeners could get a hold of me anytime uh, by email. My uh, my email address is ndietz. Um, that's n d i e t z at urban.org. And uh, Nathan Dietz, uh, thank you so much for for being my guest here today. Really important research benchmark report. Um, really uh, sort of uh, turns uh, popular thinking on its head um, with data to back it up uh, and provides tools that our listeners can actually use this data to the benefit of their organization. So again, Nathan Dietz, thank you for being my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. I appreciate the opportunity, Ted. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.